Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story. In the previous seven episodes, we have seen the veil removed on a true master of his craft, Tom Wilson. A storied career that shows Tom's direct influence in setting a half dozen musicians on the path to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A career that is mostly unknown by music fans around the world, and especially to the folks that live in his hometown and birthplace, Waco, Texas. As we wind down this series, we look into the final producing years of Tom Wilson's career and to his untimely death. He would not produce another record as impressive and prophetic as the ones that he produced between 1963 and 1968 through those Music Factory years. When glancing at his discography, it's easy to jump to conclusions about what may have happened in his final years. An apt comparison is when you review a top-tier athlete's stats. You see them build impressive numbers, but as a player approaches their final seasons and eventual retirement, the numbers, understandably, start to decline. There's no question that Tom's stats are impressive, and his last-minute decisions on records could be described as no less than clutch. But the decline in numbers is for different reasons than what we normally see in fields like professional sports. At our last check-in, we saw Tom in 1968 wrapping up the Velvet Underground's second album, White Light, White Heat. He would end the year with finishing touches on Eric Burden and the Animals, The Twain Shall Meet but he would gain a bit of much-deserved spotlight with an article in the New York Times magazine penned by Ann Gerasimos. The The cover photo of the September issue shows Tom as he coaches the lead singer of a group called Fear Itself. Ah! 
the article is absolutely fascinating. A real-time look behind the curtain and fully validates Tom as a genius and talented producer that this series paints him to be. With a strong tongue-in-cheek opening, this article would have raised some eyebrows for sure. Among the unannounced presidential candidates for 1972 is a tall, slim Negro from Waco, Texas, named Tom Wilson. Wilson is a producer of rock and roll records. His unofficial nominator is Frank Zappa, the musical father of the Mothers of Invention, one of the most successful groups that Wilson has discovered. Zappa figures that by 1972, the 50% of the population who were weaned during the formative years on civil rights rock and roll will now be ready to vote a Negro into the White House especially a Harvard graduate who simultaneously can decipher the Wall Street Journal, do the boogaloo, cut a record, and all on two hours of sleep. We wonder what future President of the United States Barack Obama might have thought if he had read it as a child. The article would show its readers what a producer really does behind the scenes. The idea of a producer would be mostly unknown at the time. Even the title of producer would be mostly unknown at the time. Usually, this role was referred to as the artist and repertory man or the A&R man. Anne supposes, though, because of the surge of pop music, the role of the producer would become more integral, much more like the role of producer as we know them today. Tom would be referred to as the most well-known producer of the time. And while that may have been accurate in some circles, in the eyes of the time, Tom was still usually just another black man. At the close of the article, we get to see Tom's personal and political beliefs in a way that, from what we can tell, captures Tom in his true form. And personally, I love this part of the article. Turning the corner onto the avenue of the Americas in his car late one night, he sees a lighted cab ahead of him deliberately speed up past a stocky Negro who had signaled plainly under a street lamp. A block away, Wilson cuts off the cab in mid-traffic, gets out with the motor still running, and accosts the cabbie, who rolls down his window and tries to look tough. Why didn't you stop for that colored fellow back there? Wilson yells. What's wrong with you? These guys are fighting and dying in Vietnam. What for? So that they can come home and get passed up by jerks like you? The cabbie moves his mouth ineffectually. A police car draws up. Two men in blue stare coldly through the glass. If you smash my car, I'll kill you, Wilson says to the cops. He finishes by cuffing the cabbie lightly on the side of the face and climbs back into the driver's seat. That'll shake him a little, he says, calmly smiling. We enter 1969. Richard Milhouse Nixon would take his oath as the 37th President of the United States. A clash between patrons and police at an underground gay bar named the Stonewall Inn gives birth to the gay rights movement. And a music festival would take place over three days on an upstate New York farm, capping what would be forever known as the Summer of Love. Over 500,000 hippies, anti-war protesters, 
and counterculture music fans attended Woodstock. Undisputably, the most famous act to grace the stage would be a 26-year-old Jimi Hendrix who would kick off his stage appearance at 9 a.m. with an ear-busting and mind-melting rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. His performance is high on multiple planes. Tom will only work on producing four records during this year, but one act he produces lands a spot on the soundtrack of a movie that would prove to be the most reverent turning of the mirror on the hippie movement and a real generation-defining movie. Easy Rider, on a shoestring budget of just $400,000, would end the year as the fourth highest grossing movie, earning $60 million worldwide. soundtrack is described by many as groundbreaking, as it included Steppenwolf, the band, Jimi Hendrix, and a tune from a Tom Wilson-produced album by The Fraternity of Man. Don't bogart that joint, my friend, pass it over to me. That familiar light goes off in Tom Wilson's mind when he sees the success of Easy Rider and its soundtrack. Having already worked on a few such projects, this transition to solely working on soundtracks is thought to have started here, according to Tom Wilson III. This could be what really pulled his attention away from cultivating new talent the way he had in the past. Over the next decade, as an independent record producer, Tom would only produce 12 albums, and of those 12, none would see any real critical success or would crack higher than 111th on Billboard Top Albums. But if we know Tom, we know that an album with a slow start is just another fertile playground for this producing genius. As Tom is attempting to transition to a potentially more fruitful endeavor, his health is beginning to decline by the mid-70s, in the research for episode one, we discovered a lingering health complication from his childhood, but it wasn't until we started the production of this series that we discovered after suffering a heart attack in 1975, Tom would be diagnosed with a condition known as Marfan syndrome. I called up Dr. Scott to learn more about what Marfan syndrome is and how it affects people. Hello? Hi, older sister. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So we are currently uh, recording a show about Tom Wilson. Um, and we have a couple of questions about Marfan syndrome. Um, would you uh, first, I guess, introduce yourself for our listeners? And we just have a couple of questions for you. 
Hi, my name is Dr. Latreya Scott. I am a primary cash force medicine physician for the United States Air Force. What kind of questions do you have for me? Well, um, basically, we would like to know uh, what Marfan syndrome is and how it affects a person. Okay. So Marfan syndrome is a genetic disorder that affects the body's connective tissue. Connective tissue is the material that holds together all the body's cells, all the organs, and everything else inside the body. So it's super important to help the body grow and develop properly. So Marfan syndrome affects about 1 in 5,000 people, and that includes men and women and people of all races and ethnic groups. So uh, so are you saying that there is no particular group that is more likely, more or less likely to, um, to get Marfan syndrome? Exactly. You have no idea who's going to get it. Um, about three in four people with Marfan syndrome inherit it, meaning they've got this condition from a parent who has it. But then one in four people just get it spontaneously. And so we really don't have a good way of telling who will get Marfan syndrome or not. Wow. Okay. That is so interesting. So uh, what are some of the uh, so the signs or indicators of Marfan syndrome? So some of the things you will see from the outside, you might see really long arms and legs, a tall, thin person. You might see someone with long, thin fingers. They might have some spine problems called scoliosis. You might have some defects in the chest wall or kind of indentations that wouldn't normally be there. They're usually super flexible. Sometimes they have poor vision. Um, and the other things you might see, kiddos with asthma, people with sleep apnea, um, or people with just difficulty breathing. Huh, okay. And what about some of the more internal uh, uh, indicators? That's a great question. So Marvin syndrome can also affect your heart and your blood vessels and your lungs, as I kind of spoke about earlier. So some of the things in your lungs you might see, specifically asthma, um, which isn't usually as devastating. But another thing is called pneumothoraxes. So because narcissism affects the connective tissue in your lungs, sometimes that connective tissue is weak in people with marathon syndrome. Um, so that tissue can just kind of break down, and you get a hole in your lungs. And when you get a hole in your lung, your lung will just collapse down. If you don't figure that out in time, then you obviously can't breathe. If I have a pretty dangerous outcome of Marfan syndrome, another system that can affect is the heart. So the the aorta is the largest blood vessel in the body, and it carries blood from the heart to the rest of the body. So in in people with Marfan syndrome, sometimes you'll see a thinning at the base of this blood vessel called an aneurysm. Now, if the aneurysm were to burst, which aneurysms will aneurysms quite often do. Um, that would cause you to bleed very, very quickly, and you would not be able to get blood to the rest of your body, and that would cause you to basically die suddenly. So that's probably the most dangerous outcome we see with Marfan syndrome. So there really isn't a treatment available for Marfan syndrome. We don't call it a disease because it is a genetic, it's a genetic condition, and there's nothing that anyone did to get it and nothing that we can do to take it away. Um, what we do is we just watch the symptoms, and so... The ones that you see, like the long arms and legs, those aren't really things that, those aren't a problem. Those are things that you just look at and say, well, that is a cool looking person. Um, but things like the vision problems, the lungs, or the heart problems, we as doctors monitor those very closely. And if we need to intervene by giving a person glasses or helping with their treatment of their lungs um, or just monitoring their heart closer, that's usually how we can monitor and manage this condition. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, where can people learn more information about Marfan syndrome? That's a great question. So if you go online to the Marfan Foundation, it's marfan.org. You can read about this condition. You can even look at the current research and projects that they're doing to help with this condition and to help people with this condition. Okay. Well, thank you so much for answering all of our questions. No problem. Nice to talk to you, Travis. All right. Well, thank you. Tom Wilson III recounts this period in the previous episode and recalls his father being thankful for the doctors that discovered his illness and that he sounded hopeful of his recovery to full health. Tragically, however, on September 6, 1978, Thomas Blanchard Wilson Jr. would suffer another heart attack, and at the young age of 47, we feel the final beat of our invisible icon in his California home. But Tom's story continues. We've talked a lot about Tom's successes and the stories behind the stories. But in all this time, one person, and arguably the most important person, has been mostly absent from our retelling of Tom's life. This person never produced a record or wrote a generation-defining tune. This person never will appear on an album. However, this person would prove to be a fixed point in Tom's dynamic life. And this person is, of course, Fanny Wilson, Tom's mother. After executive producer Zach Burke's interview with Tom Wilson III, Tom calls us back to give us a more detailed picture of just how important Fanny was to Tom and his accomplishments. And we thought it fitting to end the story of the life of Tom Wilson Jr. by going back to the start. There we go. We connected through now. Um, cool. So then, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, if, if what you remember about your grandmother would be awesome to know that. Well, my dad, my dad and my grandmother were as close as any mom and dad I could imagine. My dad called her every Sunday, and uh, and she was a, a person who was, if I was to say, and I don't, I never met my grandfather, so I can't really speak authoritatively to his role in my dad's upbringing. I don't really know, I don't really have a concept of him in other than names. But my grandmother was a tour de force. My grandmother was my dad's counselor, my dad's conscience, my dad's guidance. My, I mean, my grandmother, you talk about devotion to education. That's where I bet a lot of it comes from um, because she was, she was a, how can I say this? I wouldn't say a taskmaster because I don't know that firsthand. But I can remember my dad saying to me one time, he says, uh, so you, you go to Cambridge High in Latin here? And I go, yeah. He goes, how much Latin have you had? I said, I haven't had any Latin. He said, man, I had six years of Latin and I went to high school in Waco, Texas. 
<laughs> and I said, um, and he says, you have no Latin? I said, no, I, I, I don't have any Latin. He said, man, he just shook his head. And then my mother told me one time, he said that they used to sit there, him and his mother, and do calculus problems for fun on the porch in Waco, Texas. My dad double jumped two grades. Um, and I know that this was my, my grandmother. My grandmother was so devoted to that stuff. She used to, she used to have phrases like, you know, Thomas, every tub sits on its own bottom. At some time, it's going to come to you. And I never quite knew what she meant, but now I do. <laughs> and uh, I could just remember her, her kind of commitment to education. And I got it. I got a, a full scale demonstration of it when I graduated from college. My mother was too sick to come. Uh, and and, and I, she was in LA and I was graduated from school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And my grandmother knew, found out, because um, we talked. You know, I said, well, this is where I'm graduating. She said, well, I'll be there. I said, what do you mean you'll be there? She must have been like 89, you know, some, something crazy. Something, something. And I said, well, I'll get, I'll scrape together some money for a plane flight. Don't worry about that. And I made arrangements for her to come stay at a friend's house. And I would stay at my house and the friend would stay with us. So she would have a private place to stay. Mm -hmm. And she came up on a Greyhound bus from Waco, Texas, mm -hmm. all the way to basically to Detroit. And this frail old woman wouldn't have missed that graduation for anything because I was the extension of her son. And this was kind of, there's finally fruit on the tree. And uh, there was just not a chance she was going to miss it. But just growing up with her, the sincerity, the warmth, the good humor, the articulate way this woman was. This, this is also a first, this is also a woman who graduated from college in the 30s. Um, you know, and you, you have to put that in perspective. You've got people right now who are struggling with racism and voter suppression and all this stuff. So to have somebody, you know, two generations or a generation and a half removed from slavery, Jim Crow and all the stuff that was going on with sharecropping, have these type of people graduating from college at that time. This was, this was not your ordinary housewife. This was not a librarian by mistake. It's like I've always talked to people who've looked askance at me at school. <clears throat> Excuse me, at the University of Michigan, I had somebody who thought I was there. He, he said to me when I tried to get into his class, it was a restricted class, and uh, he said, I'm going to be on sabbatical. And I said, okay, well, the class still looks very interesting. I'd really like to to get into it. He said, you don't understand, I won't be here. And I said, no, and I understand, I know what a sabbatical is. Are you writing a book? Or are you just taking a break? What's going on? He said, I'm writing. Um, and I said, okay, great, but I still have been very interested in the class. He said, I won't be here to offer any remedial help. Right. So this is 1979. So you can imagine the climate in 1930. So I said to the guy, I said, well, you know, I don't jump high. I don't run fast and I don't play a musical instrument. I said, I'm not here by mistake. I said, I don't know where you went to school, but my father went to Harvard. Um, I said, I'm here because I belong here. And it was that type of courage and that type of 
uh, impatience for someone who was going to denigrate you that comes from my grandmother. And to think, when you think about my father, you have to think about the role that his mother played. Because remember, his father is gone. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff is going on. His father is gone. This is his beacon in the sea. This is he who he is relying on. This is who's grounding him. This is who is the, the kind of the guiding light. And it would be very easy to say that. Many people say that about their parents. But I witnessed it. I witnessed him calling her. I had to get on the phone and talk to her and my aunt. Every Sunday when I was with my father, it's time to call my mother. You know what I mean? So it was, you know, this is, imagine the backdrop. It's 1969, uh, the flower power generation, all the crazy stuff, and he's calling home to Waco. So that tells you the impact that this woman had. And I, the, the, the love and adoration that just sprung from her, I, I, I you know, I, I see it, I see it, um, I see the similarities in my wife's mother, that kind of um, whirlwind, devoted community, you know, uh, the, the kind of, it's almost like Rose Kennedy type thing, like without the dynasty, you know what I mean? So, um <laughs> I, I, I applaud my wife for saying, Steve, how could you get off the phone without talking about your grandmother? You knew her, <laughs> you know? So if I could share, share anything, let me, let me put that up there front and center. Oh no, that's, that's a great story. And I could uh, kind of, I got the feeling from when I, you know, researched into your grandparents when I was trying to figure out the, the first episode that we did of the podcast and I got to dig down mm-hmm. deep and see, you know, where, you know, they, they had to go and get married in Oklahoma and then come back here. Um, they had to, mm-hmm. you know, like different different times I could see different professions she had had. And while it seems like, you know, mm-hmm. she could e- it seemed like she could easily move from one thing to another and obviously just pick it up. Because I mm-hmm. think there was, you know, I, I think at one point in time I saw that she worked as like a in medical transcriptionist or in a hospital or somewhere. And then it had librarian. And then mm-hmm. she seemed like a woman who was, it was just the same as, you know, when we talked about your whole family that she could sit there and find something and she was going to be able to do it and be successful at it. And I could see. Well, it was, it's so true. It's so true. And I can remember her telling me a story one time about being short on some rent money at some point. And I don't know if it was stable or if it was true, but it was the embodiment of the way she thought. She said, I need $25 for the rent. And I said, what did you do, Grandma? And she said, somebody out there had my 25. Just like that. By hook or crook, she was going to get it. Oh, that's funny. This is the type of resilience this woman had. She had cataracts. She had cataracts and couldn't see. Mm. And insisted on shopping for herself. And I said, well, how did you do that? She said, well, I counted. I said, what do you mean you counted? I knew the paces to the bus stop. I knew the paces to the store, and I helped, had some people help me when I got there, but I knew my way there, and I wasn't giving up my independence. This is, this is where it comes from. Yeah. This is the, 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 the strength of purpose, the determination, the character, and that's why excuses were not real good. And I didn't realize this until I got older. You know, you're, you're trotting out your usual excuses. And you're looking at these dead brown eyes from six foot four looking down at you going, brother, you just don't know. 
Um, you know, and so as the as the miss parts and you realize from whence you came, and that's a phrase my my mother, my deceased mother in law used because she would dig on that from whence you came. Um, many 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 rows have been hoed for us to harvest here, my son. It's time to get out and pick the harvest, and so it's a. Uh, I, I, I really was remiss in getting off the phone without without talking about the relationship they had because that is something that I, if I wanted to really kind of put a capstone on it, you have to see the context. You have to understand this is an extremely successful guy in a hard charging world, driving a Ferrari, records in the top 10, living in the media capital of the world and winning with a Harvard degree, calling his mama on Sunday. That tells you something. That tells you about the power of family, the power of the woman, and the commitment he has to both. So that's what I wanted to leave you all with. Oh, no, that's that was absolutely great. I love that. That's on point. Thank old Mike for grabbing that, for not going out for a cheeseburger <laughs> and being able to grab that board. I'm glad we got that in there. Yes, sir. Bye, right, uh, brothers. Enjoy your Sunday. Uh, you too. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks now. Bye-bye. Um, as we come to the end of Tom Wilson's life, it's difficult to acknowledge that we are telling the end of Tom Wilson's life story. But I think we're definitely comforted in knowing that Tom Wilson's life really was just the beginning of Tom Wilson's story. And after listening to this series, our hope is that, you know, you as a listener would pass along the story to, you know, anyone that considers themselves a fan of 60s rock and roll or, you know, music in general, or seemingly impossible stories that somehow just keep getting better and better. We also hope that if you're the mother or father or mentor of a young person of color, that you share this story as an example of what is possible. Uh, When I was first brought into the story, I was shocked at the idea that a black man from Central Texas, born in the 30s, could graduate from could even attend Harvard, much less graduate from Harvard, and then you know move out to California and make his mark as one of the most influential producers in 60s rock and one of the you know defining voices for for the sound of a very critical time in the progression of American music history. The story of Tom Wilson is critically important. Um, you know, considering the context of where our society is right now and, uh, you know, where it was at that time as well, but especially right now. To know where we come from informs us of where we're going. And uh, in the words of Jacob Green, if you don't know what your foundation really is made of, you don't know how strong you are or how strong you can be.
on the next and final episode of Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story. The team behind the series sits down to reflect on the project and discuss how Tom's legacy can be properly addressed moving forward. This podcast is produced by Rogue Media Network. Our executive producers are Lindsay Lippman, Zach Burke, Jacob Green, and Katie Selman. Our director is Mike Hamilton. Our theme music is by the Bowleys. Join us for the next installment of Invisible Icon, The Tom Wilson Story. This has been a Rogue Media Network Podcast.